Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here of RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Scott. I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students here at RTSDC. How are you doing, Peter? Hey, Scott. Good to see you again. And Paul Jean is with us, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor of New City Presbyterian Church here in Northern Virginia. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. Hey, Tommy. A lot of love, a lot of love between these two. Shows you just the, the comedy in this faculty. Hey, hey, Paul, it's good to see you. And I'm joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, a professor of systematic theology here at RTS Washington. Hey, Gray, how are you doing? Hey, Scott, good privilege to be here. It's, we're privileged to have you. Well, story makes a difference, doesn't it? Story plays a big role in how we uh, think about our lives. And as we're looking at all the events going on around us, in many ways, we can describe a lot of this public discourse these days as conflicting stories. And so what we want to talk about in this podcast is the power and the function, I think. We could maybe say the power and the process of story not only in how we construct narratives about ourselves, but how we interpret narratives that are presented to us. Of course, most importantly, how we interpret the narrative of scripture and how story plays really an outsized disproportionate role in the way that we think about the world around us. And so we're going to come at this from a couple of different angles, but I want to start just by positing this first question. What is it? about story that is so powerful? What is it about story that is um, so transformative? I think stories are incredibly uh, life-shaping precisely because we're not just thinking beings. I think we are shaped by narrative that we orient our lives towards narrative that we have to see our lives in light of a beginning, middle, and end. In fact, you know, I was just watching a TED Talk recently, and it was talking about how people who live longer think about their lives in terms of a purpose to tell us. They orient their lives in terms of an understandable structure that they are able to therefore categorize seasons of their lives into the beginning, middle, and the end. Seasons of their lives where things were perhaps not the greatest, and then seasons of their lives where there was an upward trajectory, right? And so they're shaping their lives according to a particular tell us. And I think one of the ways that we can also see this is the fact that we are also oftentimes unconsciously persuaded by what what was shown to us, right? We're not really persuaded by something told to us. We're persuaded by something shown to us. I oftentimes tell my students that for you to write a good paper, you have to not just tell me something is true. You also have to show me something is true. And I think stories show us before they tell us something. And I think, you know, stories show us what it looks like to have a good life. Stories show us what it looks like to have a meaningful life. Stories show us how to become a good person or how to become a meaningful person. And I think that whether we know it or not, these stories shape how we view the world. It shapes our imaginations, right? Our pre 
theoretical way of orienting ourselves within the world. That's really important. That idea of it being pre-theoretical. I remember struggling with this myself in seminary and thinking like, really, you know, is, is this, is this not cognitive? You know, we talk about the story being precognitive, the idea of you know, li- living out some kind of plot line in your life or, um, or value structure that's presented in a story or in a narrative form. How is it that story gets behind your theory? How is it that story gets behind your, your propositional descriptions of the world and influences them? Gray dropped the uh, use of our imagination there. And that's a, I think, very important concept and one that we haven't really wrestled with uh, theologically, but God made us imaginative beings. And that's part of who we are. We are created in the image of God and God is a creator. God is a storyteller. God has, you know, an imagination and has created in such a way that we are we are to have an imagination, and it's a constitutive part of our thought process that we really haven't um, developed and thought about, I think, in, in theological terms. But that kind of precognitive, and I'd love to hear our, our systematician kind of think through this and, and, and talk about it a little bit more, but our, that kind of precognitive process of our imagination is what story taps into. And for me, one of the things that's been really formative in my life and, and, and the lives of my children and uh, my spouse, like the, the, the power of story to shape us and to mature us and to grow us and to give us the experiences that we wouldn't have in, you know, kind of the ordinary orbit of our lives has been really powerful. Uh, And that is through, through the means of, the imaginative process. I'm actually able to experience things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to experience and grow then in ways that I wouldn't otherwise be able to grow because the story uses my imagination as a vehicle to, to experience. Yeah. And I think you know, I had a conversation, for example, with my niece uh, a couple of years back when the movie Frozen was coming out and we're talking about what uh, she wants to be when she grows up. And my nephews were also chiming in on this. And they all said various different kinds of professions. And I asked them, you know, why uh, do you want to follow that particular profession? And they said, well, that's because it's fun. It's what I want to do. It's I want to follow my dreams. You know what I mean? And I think what they've imbibed ever since they were smaller are movies like Frozen and what they're, they've been watching in the Disney Channel is that they have consumed these stories that depicted for them what it looks like to have a good life. That if you follow your passion and your dreams, you could f- become like Elsa. That if you uh, follow your family or you follow your tradition or you follow your kingdom values, you might be entrapped like Elsa was. But then you have to follow your dream and you have to follow your independent desires. And here's how uh, true emancipation looks like. Here's what the ideal person looks like. And I think without them even knowing it, they've actually already imbibed this Western narrative where following your dreams and following your passions is the way towards authenticity, the way towards a meaningful life which is very different because uh, when my parents were growing up, for example, that wasn't exactly a concept that resonated for them, right? I mean, I remember growing up and I was watching Friends as a sitcom and uh, depicted for me, not looking back, right, that this is exactly how friendships work, how relationships work, how careers work, exactly by following your feelings, following what's true to yourself. But I remember asking my dad one day, you know, I was like probably nine, 
you know, is this something that you want to do? Like, do you enjoy what you're doing, Dad? And he just told me, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I, it doesn't matter whether or not you enjoy what you're doing. What matters is that you're responsibly making enough money so that your family could have a comfortable future. And I thought to myself, well, why did he imbibe this? And I realized that as he was a kid, he was reading Chinese novels, right? Where the ideal life was actually found in submitting towards a corporate identity and submitting towards a greater ideal, your family's ideals and following this dynastic tradition, so to speak. And I, I just realized, you know, there was nothing in my nephews nor in my dad that made them think self-consciously or deliberately or consciously that this is what the good life looks like. It's not as if they read a propositional arguments to that effect where they had proposition A and then they deduced from proposition A, B, right? That this is what the good life looks like. But they have simply been shown this is the kind of man that you need to be or this is the kind of woman that you need to be. This is the kind of community that you should strive for. And they've simply accepted that. They've never really thought about it. And in fact, I think so oftentimes, you know, when you are dealing with unbelievers when you're dealing with uh, conversations where you want to be persuasive not necessarily with unbelievers but you want to be persuasive is that you got to expose uh, the person that you're you're interacting with you got to expose them to these unconscious imaginative beliefs that they've already had or maybe even not even beliefs these pre-theoretical unconscious affections or instincts that they have and and bring them to become more explicit so that they could realize wow I've actually grown up with that worldview or I've actually grown up with that instinct all my life why let's talk about that and so that's really a pastoral task as a counseling task and an apologetic task as well I think that gets it you know this kind of general human experience of story that I think you know I, I didn't become aware of until probably sometime in the middle of seminary and you know I, I realized that there was a difference between somebody like me who was at seminary studying the Bible, studying tradition and church history and, and all of these things, and then going home and talking to a friend or a family member who had what they probably would have thought of as some kind of sort of simplistic, not simplistic, I should say, you know, um, pure faith where it's just kind of their experience of God and their experience of the scriptures and, and kind of reading the, you know, me, Jesus and the Bible type devotion style, you know, and, realizing that it's not that they were any less theologically informed, but they weren't propositionally informed, but, but they definitely, each one of them were narratively informed. They, they all had a story that they were living out. And, you know, interestingly, it's, it was, it was the atheist philosopher, Richard Rorty, who first kind of articulated this for me, but he, you know, he had this notion of the ironist, and he said, all humans, you know, particularly in this Western setting, are, are, are what he calls an ironist. You know, they, they are all living out this ironistic view of life where they see their life as a story and they're constantly making every decision, doing every behavior, building every relationship and meditating as, as, as they go through each experience, they're reflecting back on their life, wondering is my life a tragedy or is it a comedy, right? And you're constantly writing the story. And the way he digs into this, and I'm not, I'm not, not obviously not affirming the whole of his worldview, but I thought this was deeply insightful, this idea of humans themselves seeing their own lives as story 
And as they're engaging with different stories, whether it's friends or, you know, Arthurian legend or the biblical narrative, as they're engaging with different stories, they're trying them on and seeing how they relate to their story. Right. And you're trying on stories and it's shifting you and it's transforming you in a way and your values in a way that you may not even be cognizant of, but there is something pleasurable about it, which is why we keep doing it. Von, von Rod has a similar quote. He, he says, you know, we think of typology as kind of this specifically biblical, uh, <laughs> this kind of specifically biblical phenomenon. And he, but he says, von, uh, typology is properly basic to all human thought. Like one yeah. of the things that we are constantly doing is, telling our story and seeing connections between our story and other stories. And it's just, it's just the way we think. And the irreducibility of story is something that's, that's powerful. I guess what, uh, what, what draws me to the topic is, you know, I kind of grew up thinking and being told really that, that, you know, story, narrative, fiction, movies, entertainment, video games, like all of these kinds of things, they're just a waste of time. There's something that you do, re reading fiction is something that you do when you don't have anything better to do. And in pastoral ministry, I think that that idea persists. You know, what you ask a pastor, what are their, the five books that they're reading today? And they'll give you five, you know, theological, sophisticated books and, and probably no fiction, no poetry. Uh, nothing artistic and and because that's where it, what's serious that's what's uh important is the, the the theological or the historical but you know story is such a big part of our lives and so it's just a big part of our experiences that yeah you know, as an adult i'm now kind of realizing that some of the most formative things that were the case for me was was the kinds of stories I put in front of my eyes and the kinds of the kinds of books that I was reading and the kinds of shows that I was watching both you know critically and also just appreciatively for that entertainment value but also as uh, you know you, you you read a story and you criticize the main character uh, you, you you maybe not agree with Elsa about frozen I don't know if if, if gray is gonna gonna sing let it go for us or not but um, you know, you, you can you can engage those stories critically, and that be part of the formative process. I find everything so curious uh, how we almost make a narrative, whether it's you know usually our own narrative, and or try to find some type of normative as sort of the new uh, standard of uh, of authority. I remember um, when I was growing up there were so many pastors in so many churches in my area that had these amazing testimony and stories of how they used to do drugs or were uh, in gangs and the Lord redeemed them. And now look at them, they're pastoring churches. And I just didn't have a story like that. And I felt so inadequate. Then I went to seminary where I was surrounded by a bunch of guys who, you know, grew up in, in Reformed Presbyterian churches and had stories about uh, learning to count. And I didn't have that either. And it was, it was a little, uh, you know, a bit of a crisis, the, the fact that I just didn't have a, a narrative or a story. And in many ways, you almost, I almost felt that um, uh, a lot of my life afterwards was just trying to be able to have some type of a narrative, some type of a story, uh, something I could share with people 
that kind of defines who I am and, and what I believe and what, have, what I've experienced. I think that's sort of one reason why I enjoy telling stories now of things that uh, the Lord has done in my life. Uh, you know, we tend to now in our day kind of almost absolutize the narrative aspect of things at the expense of propositional truths. Uh, and that's obviously very dangerous and we don't want to do that. But it really does affirm, I think, everything that we've been talking about, the, the, the real power and the effectiveness of a story, of a, of a narrative, and, and how influential that can be in all of our lives and how it, you know, depending on what we hear, it really shapes who we are and what we come to believe and how we interact with others. That's right, Peter. So that stories, ultimately, as Tommy said as well, they form you and they're the way in which you trace your identity too, right? And, you know, I think one of the things that we have to understand, especially for those of us in ministries, is that people are not fundamentally influenced first and foremost by what they believe, or at least what they explicitly believe. People are formed by their respective stories, their pasts, their histories, and the hard work of ministry involves getting to know each and every person well so that we can actually tap into those stories and show how Christianity could speak into those stories. One of my favorite shows on TV was Breaking Bad. And I remember a very profound moment in that show to show to us uh, Walter White's motivation to become Heisenberg and the great uh, drug dealer that he was in that show was this flashback scene where he actually left a company that became a billion dollar company later on in the future. And he's always felt jealous and regretful and resentful of the fact that he's left that company. Now, that's probably not an event that he or his wife have talked about for years or even decades, right? But the fact that the show it has the kind of has the intellect to show us that his great criminal move was not actually motivated by this grand desire or scheme or plan, nor was it an intellectually formed reason, right? But, but the reason why he actually moved was because of this event that happened years ago that fundamentally embarrassed him, that fundamentally made him guilty and resentful and envious of his friends. It's, again, it's not something that's been talked about to his wife, perhaps very explicitly, nor is it something that is remembered consciously all that often in Walter's consciousness. But the fact that the show showed that particular event was actually quite profound. And I think that's how we make our decisions too, oftentimes. It's not traceable back to an argument that convinced us. It's traceable back to a particular event in our lives that we unconsciously tether our identities to. And I think there's something about story that has a, a, a if we kind of bring it back out to this, this idea of, of the narrative, there's a message to each story that even the author may or may not be totally conscious of, right? There are values that are being proclaimed. There are values that are being reaffirmed decisions there there are things to emulate that the author may or may not even necessarily be aware of what's happening just as we're not necessarily aware of our unconscious values that are informing the stories that we're living out as well yeah and i think to come back to walter white's example he really just wanted to get even that's really it he didn't want to be a criminal billionaire and to be known about meth really but he just wanted to be he wanted to get even uh, to his friends. And that's, again, an unconscious reality that he might never even admit. And I think, again, the work of counseling is to try to expose people to their deep-seated underlying instincts and events. Yeah, there's definitely something about story that speaks to the way that we comprehend things. Like, two things, that, as we were talking, that come to mind are 
I, um, I love reading business memoirs. So they could constitute as stories, even though they're semi-fiction, semi-nonfiction. And, you know, an interesting exercise is if you read a book like Built to Last, right? And the authors, uh, well, one author is like a business professor at Stanford. And you listen to the way that he talks about business. It's helpful. It's theoretical. But then if you immediately afterwards read uh, Richard Branson's book, The Virgin Way, and you hear his stories that capture these principles, for some reason, uh, there's something about the way we are as humans that things click. You know, I've been thinking about this because uh, my church, we're working through uh, the Gospel of John. And for whatever reason, I decided to read um, the, reread the Harry Potter series while reading the Gospel of John. You know, there's this one episode well, Peter, I hope I don't give this away. I think it's in book one where basically, I forget who it is, but basically I think Dumbledore explains why Professor Snape hates uh, Harry Potter's father. And it's basically because um, Harry Potter's the father saved him. And now uh, Snape is like a debtor to um, Harry Potter's uh, uh, dad. And I just use that as a simple illustration of why we, in one sense, don't like grace because we don't want to be debtors. We want to be like independent. Now, that's a basic theological idea that anyone is acquainted with. But for some reason, when I used the story, it clicked for many people. I mean, I got so much feedback on that illustration. And so I do think that, you know, stories are just the way we like, comprehend information. And this is why I also think in our tradition, there are some that, I think hesitate with using stories in uh, sermons. You know, they feel like it's in some way a deviation from being true to God's word. But you know, I think there's that book that, uh, who's the author that says he gave us stories. I do think that we should have a high value of sharing uh, appropriate stories, even in our preaching, uh, because again, that's how we tick as human beings. That's super helpful, Paul. It's great to hear that from kind of a real pastor and a regular preacher. I, I, I had this theory for, for the longest time that that pastors that don't read stories can't, you know, they're really, I won't say they can't preach, although that technically was my theory, but they're really limited in their preaching. And I went to this uh, pastor's house and I'll just say he was a terrible preacher, uh, just, you know, really dull but uh, they, he had this bookshelf, right? He had this bookshelf and it had all the great stories, everything from, you know, Harry Potter to Dostoevsky, great poetry, like just all of the things, uh, a huge range, like, like Gray Sutanto, who's dropped Elsa and Walter White in the same podcast. I mean, just a huge range of story there. And I was just thinking, this blows my theory out of the water. So I asked, you know, you know, have you, what, what, you know, do you have some favorites? What are, what's your favorite kind of literature? What's your favorite kind of story? And, and he looked at me and goes, those are my wife's books in this kind of condescending way. And, and it just, so theory maintained at that point. Uh, so I was quite proud of myself. You know, the, the, the way in which we talk about ourselves is so informed by story, but also the way in which we communicate and, and understand others. And, and I've loved story just from a pastoral point of view, as a way of, of connecting with people pastorally, you know, as Gray put out, you know, in a counseling fashion, 
but then also just understanding from people because that's how your sheep are naturally going to communicate to you is actually through telling you their stories and their experiences and, and you just can't get away from it so it's it's just part of the mesh in which we communicate with one another and if we're going to do that well and in a way that that empathizes with the other person we need to be fluent in the way in which story is structured biblical that and that's not only true from a pastoral point of view it's true from a biblical point of view and we haven't talked about this yet but i'd love to hear our old testament guys reflect on it a little bit you know just the bulk of our bible is actually narrative it's not fiction but it's narrative and we talk a lot in our classes about redemptive history and biblical theology and the way in which what's properly basic to our redemption is is an event the death and resurrection of christ as the culmination of the story that god has been writing since creation so even biblically story is kind of the mode by which god communicates to us i think many seminary students have this idea that to be a good preacher i need to be a good exegete of the Bible, which obviously is true. Like no one will disagree with that. But I think that that's just one part. Again, like I am a huge fan of like reading memoirs because when you do so, you really do enter into like um, people's stories. Like even recently I read Kevin, um, Kevin Hart, you know, the comedian is you might say autobiography. And uh, you know, a member of mine asked like why I waste time reading uh something like that versus i don't know like a like some rich theological book and i don't think it has to be either or but i think that when you enter into people's world you you do just learn how to communicate in a way that people understand and you just begin to like it's odd for, for some reason when i read a lot of like these stories whether it's fiction or memoirs it then shapes the way I read my Bible because it forces me to ask questions I would not have asked or just to see things that sometimes we don't see when we're trying to just uh, approach the Bible objectively or propositionally. So I think that's a great point uh, for a lot of preachers to consider. If they want to actually be better preachers, yes, they have to read more theology, Bible, and so forth, but they do need to just read more broadly, especially in fiction. Let me try a... a sort of meta description, I think, of why story is so important, not only in our lives, but in scripture. You know, I, I do think there's this idea, generally speaking, of all of these different poetic devices that we have at our disposal, but they could all be brought under this one umbrella of perhaps defamiliarization in one way or the other. In other words, this idea that if you can get someone into unfamiliar space, it allows them to experiment, to try on things, to practice, to see something from a different perspective. Um, if you can get them thinking about it in a different way, right? If I just speak propositionally to you, it may have this illusion of being extremely clear. And there is a clarity to it, by the way. This isn't putting aside propositional truth as not having value. But there's this other way in which propositional truth can in some ways, because of the familiarity of the language, because of its on the noseness, right? You know, the, because of its kind of obviousness, 
it can lure a person into not actually hearing what's being said. And yet, if you can get them involved in the passions and the values and the climax and the resolution of another story, right? People let down their guards, as it were. That sounds that sounds a little even more hostile, I think, than a, than than it needs to be. They let down their guards if you're challenging them, or they might just become a little bit more free in their ability to engage with something. So case in point, you, Tommy, you talk about redemptive history as kind of the big arc narrative of, of scripture, but then there's also just these little microcosms of this, whether it's you know, uh, Nathan challenging David and realizing if he just walks in and says, you shouldn't have killed Uriah and taken his wife, David may have had guards up against that kind of rebuke, that on the nose rebuke. But if he comes in and tells a story about a rich man and a poor man, now David puts on his judge hat because he's king and he's judging cases from the hinterlands. And suddenly now he's open to hearing what actually is going on in his life. You know, and Jesus was known for using parables and even pointing out that parables both reveal and conceal, right? And that's kind of what stories do too. They reveal truth, but there's also this concealing that's taking place which in some ways I think opens us up to learning and growing and changing. Okay, so now I'm moving kind of to the more, the, the formation side of story. You know, we've talked about, I think there's a lot of good examples that we've already brought up in terms of good stories, but I think in, in a way, you know, let's, let's, let's stick with let it go since I've got five daughters at home. I'm, I'm well-versed in the, uh, in the frozen verse as it, as it could be called, you know, but the idea of, let it go, you know, the song, let it go is forming you as you're listening. It's not just actually the narrative that's behind it. It's the music, musicality of it. It's the poetics of it. It's the rhyme. It's the imagery. You get drawn into it and you're not even sure why you're for letting it go. Right. <laughs> you know, and it creates this kind of like generative thing that takes place too, because in the course of the movie, the song Let It Go is actually setting the stage for the terrible cataclysm that's about to befall Arendal, right? But you know, the, the, land, the land around them. And yet it also has this generative thing that kind of blows up where people take this out of the movie and now it becomes this self-empowerment theme of letting it go, even though it's, it is creating this you know, in, in terms of the discourse of the movie, it's, it's the reason for all the problems. And yet it becomes something that like, you know, volleyball teams are singing before they go out to take the court. You know, it shows you how narrative itself can draw you in without you even thinking about what it's drawing you into. Right. That goes, I mean, I think we've been circling around this for a while now, but just the, the, the incredible power and often unconscious, we're unconscious of the incredible power that, uh, stories have in our lives, both for personal formation and spiritual formation. But the positive side of that is, you know, I think of a quote by G.K. Chesterton, Fails, fairy tales do not tell children the dragon exists. Children already know that the dragon exists. Fairy tales tell children the dragons can be killed. That, Like the surprise of story is that we are able to project a new kind of future, a new kind of reality, one, one which is 
might be otherwise unimaginable. And one of the, you know, going back to the biblical story, the constant reminder in scripture is that the dragon has been slain, that Christ has slain the dragon, and that we are to live our lives in light of the fact that Jesus is victorious. He reigns on a throne. He, he sits enthroned over heaven and earth. And, and to project that world upon our lives and to live as Christians in light of that narrative, that, that Christ is victorious. And that's what gives us hope. And that gives what gives us solace. And that, that is the story that we as pastors and theologians need to be projecting for not only ourselves, but our congregations. And as, they, as people do that, they will be better enabled to live in a world with devils filled. That's beautiful. I, I absolutely agree. I think maybe what we ought to do is have like a six-way sing-along of Let It Go. How's that sound? <laughs> Gray, you start. Well, maybe we could practice it and then maybe do a version of that in our next podcast. Do a sing-along podcast. <laughs> we haven't made Little Mermaid either. I've got, I've got the Little Mermaid song in my, in my day, right? It was the Little Mermaid, I Want More. That was the big... If I start singing, this podcast would be canceled. And now, anyhow, I, I apologize. Getting back to uh, the um, the the spirit of our conversation. Um, hey, Scott, I I love the uh, the Nathan David uh, analysis there. In terms of you're right, you know, if if Nathan came to David and just simply said, you know, you did a bad thing by uh, by taking Bathsheba and killing her husband. I don't know how much of that would have resonated as opposed to a narrative. And that perhaps is, obviously is the reason why he, he chose to use it. I think also of how, you know, in one sense, I've often wondered if we have, the whole indicative imperative that we speak about within our circles is almost based on a covenantal narrative, if you think about it, because the Old Testament at times is begins, before it begins into propositions, stipulations, commands, you know, it begins with the identity of who God is as our creator, redeemer. And then it goes into a description of his great accomplishments of what he has done. And that, and all of that is narrative. All of that is, um, storytelling of what the Lord has done for his people in the, uh, in the history of redemption. But if you stop and think about it, because of what God has done in his work of redemption, that means that we, by effect, are a redeemed people. And thus, as a redeemed people, here are now the stipulation, the commands that we are called to live. So the narrative tells us who we are in light of what God has done for us. Now, as, as now these people who have been now redeemed by the uh, the power of God in the Old Testament, whatever that might be, that might be from, you know, from uh, the Exodus, which is sort of the the outstanding great redemptive narrative of the of uh, of Scripture, in many ways, to His provision through the wilderness, to His uh, victory over you know overpowering forces into the Canaanite land. That is who now the people of God are. We are now they. We are now redeemed people, and now as a redeemed people, that's our indicative. Here is now the imperative that uh, that we are called to live by, and so it it seems to be so powerful in the way that the narrative in the Old Testament is first put into a covenantal context, and then how that covenantal context fuels 
uh, not only our own self-identity, which is so important. Uh, you know, uh, I remember growing up as a Korean guy, you know, I never really felt accepted within a, within a Korean speaking community because I didn't speak Korean. But at the same time, I, I always felt a bit ostracized within a non-Korean community because, you know, I didn't look like them. And to a certain degree, you kind of wonder exactly who you are, where do you, where's your place here, and where can you find community and friends? And it really was my identity in Christ that was in many ways my salvation to first and foremost identify of who I am in light of what the work, the redemptive work um, of Christ. And I fight so hard to remind myself of that identity. But it's all built, you see, on a, on, on a narrative of, of what the Lord has done. And that's a great story, and that's why we sing, make songs about it, and and uh, and tell it, and share it, and and preach it, and uh, pass that on to our children, and so forth. Yeah, I think Tommy and Peter, what you both have just done is you've connected what we've been discussing about story uh, explicitly to the Reformed tradition, right? You've connected it to covenant theology. You've connected it to the indicative imperative structure of uh, our faith and our ethics. And I think that uh, listeners ought to know that in the Reformed tradition, we have a wealth of resources that help us to think about this particular topic, that we are shaped and formed by our imagination and our stories, and that we oftentimes know and act precognitively or pre-theoretically before we act deliberatively and consciously, right? I'm thinking of, for example, of course, uh, Herman Boving's work and Johann Boving. Boving's, uh, for example, the, his third lecture, in his stone lectures, the philosophy of revelation on revelation and philosophy discusses the fact that human beings feel before they think and before they act. And before they think out or reason out something or before they act on something, they've already felt it to be true. And feeling in this context is not a, a, an emotion primarily, but it is kind of instinctual pre-theoretical awareness that something is true or good or beautiful, right? And so he's reflecting on the reality that uh, human beings first and foremost act on the basis of these pre-theoretical instincts uh, before they deliberately think about something. And I think this really comes out in his exegesis and Johann Wabing's exegesis, especially of Romans chapter one, where oftentimes what we're going to see in Romans chapter one uh, is not primarily that we know God theoretically by way of creation or nature. It's not as if we see God by way of thinking about God from nature, that we reason from created things unto God. That's possible. We're not denying the possibility of that, but that's not what's being discussed there in Romans chapter one. Rather, what's being discussed is that we perceive God in nature. There is a perception there. And the language of perception for Johann Boving refers to this pre-theoretical knowledge again, that we feel God's presence existentially. We feel his presence in a, in a primordial awareness uh, sort of way. And so what Johann Boving starts to say is that because we know God in this way, we will try to suppress this knowledge of God, not only by unconsciously repressing that knowledge, but also by reasoning against that knowledge, such that oftentimes we use our reasoning not to get at knowledge, but rather to suppress what we know or to act out on something that we've already felt we want to be true in the first place. So that reason is not the driver, so to speak of the engine of why we behave the way we do, but rather reason is a kind of retroactive move that seeks to justify whether in self-deception or not, what we want to hold on to in the first place. 
And what Johann Boving says there is that we perceive God in creation, we existentially know him, and we use our reasoning powers to suppress that knowledge as best as we can. And we also, in unconscious ways, repress that knowledge as best as we can. This also comes out more recently in um, uh, James K. Smith's work, of course, where he argues that worldview, therefore, is not a sufficient category. Worldview is very good. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient to account for human anthropology, that we're oftentimes driven by so many things outside of our worldview, uh, explicit worldview beliefs anyway. So the Reformed theological tradition here has so many resources to offer on this topic. This is not just a, a, a theory that we're making up, nor is it just a theory that we've drawn from other philosophers, from other traditions, but it is actually at home within the Reformed tradition. So, Greg, let me ask you as an epistemologist, with all of these competing stories that are establishing different value structures and this idea of reason as confirmation bias, okay, how can we as Christians say that we know anything? How can we know things that are true and not just be hijacked by whatever the most compelling story that we've heard in our lives? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, we don't want to be skeptics, of course, right? And we have to, at first and foremost, make a distinction between things which are perhaps more more penetrative to the heart, more close to the heart. And I think that when it comes to knowledge of God and things in relation to God, things in relation to theology, these are matters that will directly impact your heart. And so how you respond to the issues of God cannot be neutral, right? That there will be a desire to repress the truth if we don't want to believe this about God, because if we believe this about God, our lives have to be different. What we believe about God and what we say about God has an immediate consequence for how we live our lives. And oftentimes we don't want to change our lives. And that's why we use reason, as you say, Scott, as a kind of confirmation bias. With regard to everyday things, things might not be as uh, heavy or fraught, right? If everyday things, uh, oftentimes we will seek out the best solutions uh, with what's in front of us when it comes to perhaps math or something like that. But I think that the way Christians can avoid skepticism with regard to theological issues is by checking ourselves once again in the word of God, that this is the narrative into which we should see our lives being formed by, right? And that this is the narrative that, that makes and forms our identity first and foremost. And by seeking this word, which comes from the outside, this is not just my word speaking into myself, but rather this is the word of God that addresses me and confronts me and challenges me. I have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, submit myself to this word. And by the submission, we find true freedom. And so we find this combination of Eastern and Western narratives together in Christianity. Precisely by submission to the greater kingdom of God, will you find true and authentic freedom? The spirit of God will implant the letter of the law, not in tablets of stone, but in the tablets of human hearts. And by prescribing ourselves into this kingdom of God, right, we will actually find the, the desires of our hearts satisfied rather than repressed. And I think the twin responses, therefore, of being confronted by the word of God and submitting in light of the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that's where we can avoid a kind of skeptical cynicism. Yeah, it's got to be a part of God as a revelatory God, right? Uh, just step into the postmodern space for a minute. If if we really are just stuck in this imminent frame, right, then all it is is a bunch of competing stories, right? which, which is in a way what Jacques Derrida's argument is in 
is postmodern you know, theory is the idea that since there's no absolute story, then let's just play with the stories we've got. And that was his answer, like play, right? And I, and I think he's got a point that a really fundamental point that Christians need to listen to. There's a lot of compelling stories out there, you know, in preaching labs, sometimes somebody will preach something and it won't be true, but it'll tap into a great story. And you'll hear somebody say, well, well, that preaches, right? Well, it may preach, but it's not always true. And the way we can be grounded in reality and in truth is through hearing, right, the revelation of God, right? Because God is a God who reveals himself. He speaks from outside of the system. Therefore, we're not stuck in the imminent frame of all of these stories pinging off each other like electrons, okay? But we get to have this anchor in reality because the creator himself has spoken into the world. That seems to me to be a really fundamental part of this. This is why Christians can talk about story and not be fearful of losing truth. That's really yeah. helpful, Scott. I, I, I'm kind of thinking of, about some of the practical implications of that, because one of the things that, I, that can happen when we hear about how powerful stories are is we think, okay, well, I should only read, I should only appropriate, I should only engage with like true stories. Uh, stories that are, you know, Christian or thoroughly Christian in their orientation. I can't, I can't watch Breaking Bad. I can't do, you know, I can't appropriate these other kinds of stories or The Little Mermaid or something like that. Um, and th there is some truth to that. We need to be careful about what we fill our hearts with. But at the same time, if we're grounded in the Word of God, if we're grounded in the meta narrative of Scripture, or better, the meta narrative of redemptive history, which is the overarching uh, story, it is the true story. If we're grounded in that, then we can utilize and appreciate and engage with these other stories in, insofar, like from a Vantillian perspective, insofar as they do reveal to us the truth of human experience, the truth of a fallen world the truth that characterizes many aspects of our lives, while at the same time critiquing that within the overarching story, the, the better story, the, the most compelling story, the story of Christ and how Christ has, has redeemed all things. And that's something we've tried to kind of appropriate in, in our household is, you know, whether we're watching something, you know, the, the next Disney movie or something a little bit, uh, darker. Uh, we just did the uh, Harry Potter uh, book six. We just watched the, we finished the book as a family. And so we watched the movie. That's been our, our kind of tradition. W whether we're watching, whatever we're watching, you know, we can engage that in appreciative critique. Um, on the one hand, pulling ourselves into the story and allowing ourselves to, to engage our imagination in that way. But on the other hand, using scripture to then project the biblical world onto uh, and map the biblical world onto these, these tales. That's so true, Tommy. You know, uh, if you really think about it, every great narrative, uh, whether it's modern or ancient, so if you think back to some of the great ancient stories like Gilgamesh and, and things like that, really are, as Van Til would say, they are borrowing on a the Christian theistic worldview. Because we we live in a fallen world, everyone intrinsically seems to know that, and they're looking for a way to overcome it, and and they are creating narratives 
and telling narratives that that reflect the biblical narrative to a certain extent because they realize that there is certain necessities that we need in order to overcome the fallen world in which we live. And you see remnants of that in, in the world around us, but it's only the true narrative of scripture that really resolves all of those conflicts. And, and you could see how they're trying to, you know, and this, and this is the reason why uh, there's such a broad general similarity with a lot of biblical narrative with what you find in the ancient world, as well as, you know, the Greco-Roman world. By ancient, I mean, you know, pre-Greco-Roman, as well as the Greco-Roman world, and even in our day to day, they all seen the need for a Messiah. They are all seeing the need for a substitute. They're all needing a sense of resolution. And that's the biblical narrative. But it's only the scriptures that gives us the reality and the real solution to all of that. So how do we apply what we're talking about in terms of exegesis or interpreting scripture, so much of which is story, and even that which is not story, like the poetry of the prophets or the wisdom teaching is springing out of story. Okay, how do we think about Moses and the construction of the Torah, right? Where you have these stories and accounts, and then you have the teaching that comes out of it, or the historian who who I think, you know, comprised or at least drew together everything from Joshua to Kings, excepting Ruth, and is telling this large narrative, this, this large arc of a story, or the gospel writers, for instance, you have the synoptics versus John, you have the synoptics versus each other. How do we think about, or how does this understanding of story and fiction influence the way we exegete those scriptures? What are we assuming about those texts that might need to be said explicitly for people who are reading the text. I mean, to put it another way, are these authors writing stories? We're, we're using this term kind of generally. What do we mean by that if we're saying these authors, authors are writing stories? Or are they just sitting down, you know, beside the Valley of Jezreel with their notepad, just kind of jotting down the facts as they take place in front of them? How does story differ from that kind of sort of notarial note uh you know his you know, historical account well the 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 narratives the and the great biblical narratives that we have in scripture uh as you know do serve a covenantal purpose informing us of who god is what he has done it informs who we are and what we are called to do and uh, that seems to be one real helpful way of understanding and analyzing and and you know beginning to appreciate uh, the narratives that we have, you know, there's a reason why there is such a strong theocentricness to to the uh, biblical narratives and how, and even in something, you know, a narrative like Esther, where, you know, where it's so well, it's been well uh, uh, commented that God is, is never mentioned, but even there, you know, it, it's sort of the radical opposite, a way of making God present. You either can make him present in the narrative by mentioning them all the time, or you make him present by not mentioning him at all because that silence is so deafening. He's he is obviously there, and you can make it so clear by saying by not mentioning him that by mentioning him at all. But you you do definitely get the sense that it serves a a covenantal purpose. But also you know we read the uh, biblical narratives in a way to really kind of identify ourselves. It's hard to not it's hard to read the is the history of Israel and their and their sin their proneness towards idolatry and not really read ourselves into that narrative and to see you know that we're not just reading about israel we're reading about ourselves as well 
So the authors are writing in a way that teaches or draws you towards a specific conclusion. And you're saying that's covenantal, that's theocentric, right? What, what other kinds of, of messages might we expect to find in biblical narrative? I mean, are there some other examples that you all can think of, of, of passages that are told in just such a way to kind of lead you to the conclusion that the author has in mind? This sometimes comes up in the Gospels, and it can be a bit unsettling at first, to, especially you know, when you're comparing the synoptic Gospels and you see the different ways in which Matthew and Luke and Mark are presenting the same story. That it can be a little unsettling to think, well, what did, you know, Matthew has uh, Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in Luke's gospel, it's blessed are the poor. So which one did Jesus really say? Which one is, which one actually happened? And students kind of gradually, you know, us as readers of scripture, we can kind of gradually appreciate that Matthew and Luke have different perspectives on the same story. They're telling the same story artfully and literarily differently. Which one is right? And that can, I think that can be the wrong, in some ways, the wrong kind of question to ask. It's, it's still a good question, but you know, to your point, Scott, or to your question, Scott, like one of the ways that, one of the things that Matthew and Luke are doing is they're trying to help us see different aspects of Jesus's teaching. Matthew uh, is perhaps trying to help us to see that the need for spiritual humility when it comes to appropriating the message of Christ, that we must all be as the poor, and we must humble ourselves in order to appreciate the message that Jesus is uh, preaching to us. Whereas Luke has a sustained and Interest, sustained interest in the oppressed, in the, the actually poor, and wants us to see that if we truly understand Jesus's message, it will demonstrate itself through charity to our neighbors, that uh, blessed are the actually poor. And, and which one is right? Well, both of them are right. And I actually need both stories. I need both takes on the story in order to see the full the fullness of Jesus's message, the, all of the implications that might be embedded there. And then I need commentaries about the story. I need Paul telling me things. I need, uh, I, I need the author of Hebrews to highlight certain things. I need James to remind me about the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. I, I need all of those different perspectives to understand the fullness that's there in the actual events that took place. I wonder if there's also a, uh, from an Old Testament standpoint, how the narratives are, are really building to the, a climactic messianic uh, necessity and identity. You know, you, know you, you really get that in the historical narrative because of the significance of something like 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant of David, that promised uh, son of David that would, uh, that would come. And in many ways, you could almost see that in the mire of all of the sin and idolatry and and corruption and instability politically, morally, worship and and 
and in terms of worship throughout the history of Israel, you just see this constant stability in the need for uh, for that Messiah and how he will come. And it's interesting how even that narrative is portrayed differently between uh, some of in different portions of the Old Testament. It's very similar to the synoptics uh, that Tommy was just talking about. The In the books of Samuel and Kings, you get this portrait of, you know, here's David, here's Solomon. You think that you're better off with him, with David, than Saul, but in reality, he's just another Saul. Uh, and in fact, some of the biblical text in Samuel almost portrays David as just a Saul redux in, in some sense. He's clearly not going to be the kind of now you know as a result of people like David and Solomon and so forth, you know the Israelites are in exile, but the promise of a of a Messiah is great. It's true. What we need though is a perfect Messiah. So where the Samuel and Kings narrative is showing you the reliability and the beauty of the of that messianic promise, it's also testifying that David and Solomon and and the sons of David that sub- subsequently followed. They're not it. They are fallen. But the promise is good. When you get to Chronicles, you see sort of a different picture of David Solomon there where all of the, you know, the the Bathsheba, Uriah, Absalom Rebellion, all of that narrative in David has been completely edited out. You know, when you get to Solomon, you get this picture of um, the descriptions of Solomon as a, a womanizer who has apostatized. All of that has been edited out. The picture you get of David and Solomon now is sort of the prototypical picture of the ideal son of David that is yet to come. And so it's so interesting how that narrative there of the necessity of a Messiah as being the definitive point in which the sin problem is going to be resolved, the kingdom will be brought in, is portrayed differently, but yet both are reliable, both are true, and and both are fantastic. There's been a movement over the last 30 years, and you're, you're pointing out a lot of the fruit of this movement, which was this return to the scriptures as literature. And I think a lot of people hear that and think, oh, it's going to be something like what happens in English departments or something in undergraduate colleges. But it's, it's really been this kind of return to scripture as literature and as story. And interestingly, it's been kind of led by a lot of Jewish scholars, you know, I think of like Adele Berlin and, and James Kugel, and of course, Robert Alter, who many people know of just because Tim Keller quotes him all the time. Um, But these scholars who have pointed out how the text is, is, is artfully composed and that this is not just a redaction of a bunch of different sources or oral elements that were floating out there, but that this is, this is an authorially composed text. It's not fiction per se, but it is composed as story that holds together and is tight and moves towards a certain particular uh, message or agenda. And, you know, and, and it's actually diffused a lot of that previous school of thought that held that, well, the text is just kind of randomly put together and how can we know what's going on here or there? This, this is probably from a totally different source. And uh, I think a lot of that work has really shown that these conundrums, that critical theory um, the old literary criticism, you know, of the, you know, Wellhausen Groff hypothesis and other higher criticism, you know, how a lot of those conclusions were really based on this faulty assumption that the texts of the Old Testament are not artfully composed, you know, and 
Robert Alter pointed out, you know, you, okay, so you have multiple stories of, of a patriarch going to a foreign king and saying that his wife is his sister and the foreign king takes the, 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 the wife and then you have this whole debacle after which the wife is then freed and everyone is restored. And, you know, the old critical theory argument was that these are a bunch of different sources that have been kind of clumsily threaded together and, uh, you know, shows really the unreliability of the text and, you know, sort of a history of composition. And um, it's interesting, you know, Alter points out, like, no, this is actually a thing that happens. It's, it's a type story. And this is where you tell a story in a similar fashion in order to draw attention to the similarities and dissimilarities between each story. You know, we have the same thing with a patriarch or someone going to a well to find a wife, which of course is, is common throughout the Old Testament and then, you know, is, is, is sort of, you know, laid hold of by the gospel writers, particularly Jesus coming in and going to the well and meeting his wife, right? The Samaritan, okay? So he's bringing in uh, the Gentilic community and the Samaritan community into his covenantal arrangement. You know, you, you have this kind of conscious um, story making that explains a whole lot better what's going on in the Old Testament than this kind of throwing up your hand saying, well, this obviously has to be multiple texts threaded together in a clumsy fashion, you know, and this is why multiple Old Testament scholars, I mean, Bruce Walke was the one who made this point for me, but, you know, I pointed out that these are not just redactors, these are authors, right? This is authorial intention, not redactional intention. And that's, that was very important for me so that you can go back and you can read the text again, looking at the details and expecting the details to be there for a reason, because they're drawing you to the conclusion that the author is making, whatever that might be. And that might be different for the author of Kings versus the author of Chronicles, right? Because they're, they're, they're writing in different contexts and they're highlighting different aspects, much in the same way that we talked about how the gospel writers, Tommy, are highlighting different aspects of the kingdom and, and, and the development before and after um, you know, the exile. And that to me really opened up the scripture in a way that I think appealed to me personally, right? And yet also, I think, really kind of squeezed the scripture for all it was worth, as, as opposed to just looking for propositional applications of scripture, looking and not only seeing what scripture says, but you know, to, to paraphrase Adele Berlin from University of Maryland, not just to look at what it's saying, but how it's saying what it's saying. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I, I think that's right. And the, the engineer in us can kind of look at the artistry of scripture and get a little frightened, get, you know, as if the fact that these narratives and uh, are told artistically makes scripture somehow less than God's word or less than true. Uh, I think of uh, Locke once called the, the metaphor is a perfect cheat. Um, and we can, we can think when we have, by the way, he's using a metaphor there uh, to, descri to describe metaphors as a perfect cheat. But you know, we could think of metaphorical language or artistic language as merely kind of literary ornament that in essence lies to us. But it, actually the opposite is true, that when we construct something artfully and artistically, we're not saying less, we're saying more. And that gives us, a, there's a depth in scripture that is not less than propositional, but more than that. And it allows us to ex experience what it means to be 
in Christ Jesus in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. That's great. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap up. This has been a great discussion, and I think we could probably continue this on to parts two and three and four and five and keep going. We haven't even delved into Tommy Keene's primary interest, which is Bakhtin, and he just uses all this literary stuff just to try to get people to talk more about Mikhail Bakhtin. That's his first name, right, Mikhail? Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, I didn't even get to quote Mir Sternberg or Fokelman or any of the people I wanted to quote yet but we'll come back to that later. What I would like to do is wrap up with recommendations from your recent reading history. You know, anything that you've read recently or seen or maybe a podcast you've listened to that either sheds a light on this topic or something else that you found to be important and you'd like to recommend to others. I will start. I went back recently, this is before we decided to talk about this topic, but I went back recently to um, a, a book that I really have appreciated over the years, written by James Wood. Uh, the book is called How Fiction Works. And I think for a variety of reasons, you know, he, he's, a, he's an excellent literary critic. He writes for The New Yorker. And this book is in some way sort of his, his manifesto on what good fiction looks like. And what surprises me about him is that you know, he, he will argue that Flaubert is kind of the first real novelist of the, of the modern mode or really, really of human history. I would argue actually that a lot of what he is looking for in fiction today or in good artful writing, right, is found also in scripture. You know, the idea of the rounded character. I think David presents a very rounded character in the Old Testament. I think Peter does in many ways in the New Testament. The idea of, uh, he talks about a kind of narrative or narrator, uh, what is he called? Free indirect style of narrator. And that's where the narrator is not only reporting on what's happening, but will insert his own values into the system as he's talking about what he's reporting on. And I think you find that in characters like the Old Testament historians of Joshua through Kings. So it may not be in exactly the same way that we see in the Enlightenment mode, but you know, with, with James Wood's book, it's, it's a wonderful explanation of all of those things that we've been talking about. And also I think just really well written and it's not very long and it's got a great cover. I actually argued with my publisher. I wanted my cover to copy the cover of the wholeness imperative to copy this cover. And I lost the battle though. I, I do like the cover that we ended up getting, but he's got a great sort of simplistic mid 20th century modern style cover. So James Woods uh, or James Wood rather, not the actor James Woods, um, how fiction works. As I mentioned earlier, we as a family, we finished uh, Harry Potter book six and then we watched the movie. And one of the things that inevitably happens is you start looking at the difference between the, the book and the movie and which is better and what did they do. And it drove me back to a, an article by C.S. Lewis. I, it's, I think it's called On Writing for Children or maybe it's on fairy tales. I have to, we'll fix it in the uh, show notes. But it's a great little article that's not only, I, I would recommend it not only for people that are trying to write well, but to read well and also uh, for pastors, for preaching. He distinguishes between like three ways of writing for kids. And the first way, he says the crudest way is to kind of give them what they want. Um, and the, the reason this article came 
to my mind is because I thought I think that that's what book the movie version of book six really did. They took the all the relational stuff of, of Harry and Dumbledore out and they gave you love triangles. You know, it's all, it's all about, you know, uh, the angst surrounding teenage love triangles. And, and they really kind of just this is what the kids want. So we'll give them give them this. And, you know, it makes for a good story, Lewis says. But the second way, the better way is to kind of give them what you need, what they need, uh, give them what, you know, you think they need. And then the third way, and I found this just really helpful, was actually the, the reason you write a child's story is because it's the best way to write what you want to convey. And I found that really helpful, actually, as a preacher. Like, the, the goal is not for me to give them what they want. It's not to tell the illustration just to kind of hook them in or to, you know, to, to make them laugh. But rather, you know, the reason I use an illustration, the reason I tell a joke, the reason why I make a point the way I make a point is because it's the best way to convey what needs to be conveyed. And I found that very helpful, both as a, you know, as, as a writer and as, but as a preacher and as a, as a teacher, you know, the reason I'm speaking and the way in which I, I, the best way in which to kind of get the message across is to use the kinds of stories that best convey what needs to be conveyed. That's great. My wife have often said, you know, to be a good preacher, you have to learn how to communicate to children. Uh, then you'd be, then you'd be a better preacher teacher to adults. And, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, I guess for me, uh, and you know, I won't belabor this too much, but one recommenda that I guess I would make is just a, a genre of reading is is biographies or autobiographies, for that matter. I guess uh, that's something I've always enjoyed doing, and so I'm always wanting to read a biography of some sort, you know, consistently. I just finished Herman Seldon. For some reason, I've been doing a lot of Calvin readings this summer, and uh, that wasn't intentional. It just sort of providentially happened uh herman selderhouse's biography it's it's uh, back uh, on john calvin this was written during the, the 500th year uh birthday of calvin a few years ago uh i just started and picked up uh another biography on calvin by um by my old uh, professor of church history bob godfrey on um uh, Pilgrim and Pastor, I think, is is the title. Interesting, Selderhouse says very little about the Institutes, but he said that up front, that he's not going to say a lot about uh, the Institutes, per se, in his biography, which is sort of unusual in as Calvin biographies go, because his life wasn't nearly as filled with stuff like Luther, I mean, where, you know, his biography is filled with so many great narratives, and, and Calvin has some of that, but not nearly as much. And so I really appreciated the way that Selderhouse took the time to read, uh, to tell the story of, uh, of Calvin. Uh, you know, Gray, you may appreciate this, but uh, a pastor friend of mine, Danny Olinger, uh, wrote a um, biography on the life of Gerhardus Voss. And Voss's life was fairly similar. I mean, it didn't have a lot of, of uh, spectacularism. So a lot of the what he had to write was tracing some of the major works that Voss wrote and what was the stimulus behind it. That was great. I mean, as a fan of Voss, as someone who had Voss has made such an impact on my life, as you know, you know, to read about his story and to read uh, the background uh, of his life and the stimulus behind why he wrote some of the things that he wrote uh, was, was great. I was, it was great to hear his interaction with people like Abraham Kuyper and Bovink and Warfield and how he was sort of the bridge 
between the American Reform community, uh, sort of embodied in B.B. Warfield with the Dutch Reform community of Bovink and Kuiper, and, and how Voss is sort of the, the one that kind of brought those two worlds together. And it was, um, and it, it was great. I loved it. And so those would be two, I guess, biographies that I would recommend, or the three that I mentioned there of Selder House and Godfrey's biography on Calvin, uh, Danny Olinger's one on, on Voss. My recommendation is probably the least fictional out of the uh, books recommended here. But in the last six months, I've just been going back and rereading very slowly and systematically Abraham Kuyper's Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology because uh, I'm writing on him. And it also was uh, very useful to me as I, as I prep for class. And this particular book, I mean, it's a bigger book. It's actually a translation of the second volume, mostly, of a three-volume Dutch work. It's, it's known for... Kuiper's defense of the organic inspiration of scripture uh, in, in parallel with Warfield's treatment. But I'm just surprised at how creative Kuiper was in this particular text and how, of course, this text was overshadowed as well by, like, by Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism. And um, because it's an old text, uh, people don't read it as much. But again, he's, he's super creative in it. I mean, for example, the reform normally characterized the doctrine of scripture as sufficient, necessary, authoritative, and perspicuous. But Kuiper doesn't articulate uh, the, the attributes of scripture that way. He chooses other terms. He used terms like fixedness, durability, catholicity, and purity, which is very uh, a different way of, of characterizing scripture. And he really emphasized its written form over it being audio or over it being visual. It's very it's a very romantic text in some ways because it's, it's really discussing the, the granularity of scripture in a way that was surprising and creative to me still as I read through it slowly as a whole everybody thanks it's been great talking to you i look forward to uh, continuing this conversation in the weeks ahead as well um until next week take care everyone farewell bye Yeah, and I lots of flubbed uh, everything I said. You love everything you said. I, no, flubbed, flubbed. <laughs> oh, dropped the ball. I, I, said, I, I, loved, loved. I loved everything I said. <laughs> That's I confidence. Too. That's confidence, Tommy. I like it. Don't be shy. I mean, you know. Let's say, Tino, do not edit one thing I said. It's perfect. Perfect.